Hello folks and welcome to the Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. My name is Graham Stevens and I really hope that I can bring a smile to your face. Why do only fools and old work Hello there and welcome back. This week, episode four of A History of Radio Comedy. I'm going to follow that with a classic radio show of its time. Uh, you sing, Mr. Robinson. Oh, like a bird, a vulture. You sing, Mr. Handley. <laughs> like a dream, a nightmare. Well, then what are we waiting for? After you, Claude. No, after you, Cecil. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Robinson. Yeah? Now, Mr. Robinson. Mm-hmm. You have just arrived here from the USA. That's right. And the question on my list is do lemons still exist? And do bananas curl the same old way? Well, Mr. Andley. Yes? Yes, Mr. Andley. Oh? It's true there's lots of fruit there, I agree. But there's still one here, I see. It's the raspberry, I mean. I don't get it, Mr. Robinson. You will shortly, Mr. T. Mr. Handley. Well, Oh, Mr. Handley. Yes? Is it true that here in England, more or less, fellows have no time to spoon underneath the silvery moon, and all the girls are in the ATS? Oh, Mr. Robinson. Now, Mr. Robinson, you must have heard that nonsense in a bar. Why, ever since the war, there's been more love than before. That's the berries, Mr. Handley. No, the blackout, Mr. Robinson. Yes, Tommy Handley of Itmar and Edward G. Robinson of Hollywood. An unlikely partnership, but perhaps for that very reason, a useful symbol of the cooperation between the fighting allies in 1942. With America's forces now in the war, her radio artists and scriptwriters naturally came along as well, which wasn't necessarily to the liking of everybody in the comedy business. The feeling in the famous jibe, overpaid, oversexed and over here, affected our local funny men from time to time, and a very dry and sardonic comedian like Ronald Franco was capable of sounding a bit grouchy about it, making some of his audience feel a bit puzzled, I sense. You... The great British public, whose well-known artistic taste for higher wit before the war, (laughs) so often elected me 74th in competitions for order of popularity, have, I am sure, little idea of the way in which we labor on your behalf. Alert or no alert, we always are. We never get any sleep, because in the earliest hours of every morning, we have to listen into American jokes. and then spend the remaining pre-dawn translating them into English for you. <laughs> After breakfast, tea and aspirin, we, uh, we comedians send scores of priority telegrams to each other, stating in vain which of the American gags are now our own original and exclusive ones. The American style that Franco felt he was being forced into was now widely heard in Europe, and we can sample a little of what he was on about in an extract from a program called, oddly enough, Command Performance. Hardly the British idea of one. What it mainly shows is the sheer weight of celebrity that America could unload in one program, if it felt like it. Here, round the one microphone, are four world-renowned names. Bing Crosby, Judy Garland, a young man apparently built of pipe cleaners and brill cream, Frank Sinatra, and the ringmaster, Bob Hope. 
Thanks, Judy. That was swell. You know, it's always a pleasure to hear you sing. Oh, that's very sweet, Bob. But to tell the truth, I didn't come down here to command performance just to sing. I have something on my mind. Me too. Let's get out of here, huh? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious, Bob. I, I really have quite a problem, and I want to ask you a big favor. Well, sure, Jude. What is it? Well, I know you're with Paramount, Bob, but you see, I'm making a musical for MGM, and I need a leading man. He must be very good-looking, tremendously talented, <laughs> have loads of appeal for women, so naturally, I came to see you. Well, gee, thanks. I felt sure you could recommend somebody. <laughs> the choice for my next lead has just narrowed down to two men. Two men? Mm-hmm. Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. Well, go on. So far, you've only got a man and a half. <laughs> Oh, Sinatra and Crosby. Why don't you take me for your leading man? Forget about breathless and hairless. Oh, Bob. Bob, my mind is made up. But honestly, Judy, I run away from it. If you'd only reconsider. After all, what is Crosby, anyhow? Don't nobody answer that. <laughs> oh, hi, you, Bing. Hello, Bing. <laughs> beginning to worry about you, Bing. Really? Yeah, we're afraid you might show up. <laughs> Where's Frank Sinatra, Bing? I thought you were coming over together. Oh, we were, Judith, but I, I couldn't carry him another block. <laughs> I popped him in the traffic. Oh! What is the matter with her? I think she just said it, Sinatra. <laughs> yep, here he is. Hello, everybody. Hello, Frank. I'm awfully glad you got here. Well, every once in a while, one of those long shots come in. <laughs> How are you, Frank? How would you know? <laughs> oh, I feel fine, Mr. Crosby. Let's declare a little moratorium on the formality, Frankie. Just call me Bing. Oh, no, I wouldn't dream of calling a man of your years by his first name. <laughs> Mass stardom overcoming the woodenness of the setup in command performance. It wasn't the British style to concentrate the talent in that way. Rather, it would spread out over an increasingly vast range of entertainment programs, more and more of them aimed at particular national or armed forces audiences, some of them far off and reached by shortwave. Variety shows were now parceled out so that each particular branch of the uniformed services could feel there was a little patch of the airwaves that belonged to them. And the longest running of them, within the war itself, was the pet property of the home defence systems. For anti-aircraft and balloon commands and coast artillery, the 324th and final broadcast of Ack Ack Beer Beer. And on came our genial host. The particular confidence exuded by Wing Commander Kenneth Horne, a blend of headmasterliness and businessman's bounce, was to turn him gradually into a kind of human maypole of radio comedy, around whom zanier talents would frolic. But for now, his duties were those of a basic chairman. I forget how many times in the last four years our next artist has done his stuff and nonsense in this program. To be strictly truthful, he's been kept in a box in the studio and let out as required. But only this afternoon he... well, he just happened to escape. Pray comparative silence, then, for Corporal Bill Waddington. Uh, hello, everybody. Very pleased to see you. Very good afternoon. 
You, yes. seem, you seem to be in high spirits today, Bill. Yes, I am, yes. I, I'm very high-spirited just now. I've, you know, I've taken a new hobby on. I'm doing a bit of bird fancying oh, now. Oh, really? Yes, I... I was up with the lark this morning and out with the wren last night. Yeah. Right. You know, I've got, a, I've got a friend of mine, he keeps a poultry farm. He said to me the other day, he said, Do you know, Bill, a single hen can lay 500 eggs a year? I said, Is that so? He said, Yes, it is. I said, How many do the married ones lay? He's a nice fellow, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, noticed, I noticed he was smelling very nice, you know, lovely smell. I said, What's that? Is it the air cream? He said, Yes. I said, What is it? He says, that's Pomme de la Paris, 18 shillings a bottle. I said, have a smell at that. He says, good gracious, what is it? I said, petrol, you can't get it at any price. Ah. Aye, the same Bill Waddington we've been watching in latter years as Percy Sugden on Coronation Street. For listeners who tired of the variety format, there wasn't very much relief, but there was some, pioneered from the middle of the war by the journalistic and literary wit Stephen Potter, with the subtle help of a new accomplice, Joyce Grenfell. Between them, they worked up some instructive entertainment, which gradually turned into what the BBC likes to call an occasional series, the How-To series. By 1943, the war was going well enough for them to consider the problems of how to give a party. As you'll hear, the style of production owed a lot more to drama than to music hall. Charlie, Charlie! Could I have a word with you? Charlie, what? Uh, did you want the sausage rolls now or later? Oh, are you ready yet? Oh, they're ready, but I didn't know if you wanted them saved for later. No, but they ought to be going round now. Charlie! And that really is eloquent. Fascinating. That man really writes those poems about the lake of longing and the garden of recollection. Yes. Even the back of his head is fascinating to me. Let's tear the back of his head. Excuse me a second, Marion. I must just have a word with Charlie. Charlie, there's a perfectly strange man juggling with some mince pies in the dining room, and I know he's going to break a glass or something. Oh, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, this is your house, and those are your glasses just as much as mine, so go and stop. I don't know what I'm going to say. I expect you get thousands and thousands of letters, don't you, about your music, Mr. Martin? Uh, I did get a letter last week from a lady who didn't seem to like it. She was very down on it. It's always been my ambition to be able to make music. I suppose you started from the cradle, Mr. Martin. Uh, no. As a matter of fact, uh, I was a schoolmaster in Cape Town for a number of years. Oh, yes, of course you were. The quiet but sometimes exquisite comedy of Stephen Potter and Joyce Grenfell, offering a lovely change of pace to exhausted wartime nerves. What most listeners seemed to need, though, was the boisterousness of stage humour, with the communal comfort of audience reaction thrown in. The fact of laughter was perhaps a better tonic than the material itself. Here's an example that ought to have been typical, but turned out dramatically different. It's the start of a corny cross-talk, old-fashioned but fondly received, from a seafarer's show called Shipmates Ashore. It was broadcast from London, because by 1944, comedy had returned from North Wales to the capital, on the assumption that the worst of the Blitz was over, which, in terms of saturation bombing, it was. But there were new dangers in the air. Let's turn the telescope on Claude Halbert, now appearing in Panama Hattie, and Enid Trevor! <laughs> Oh, here I am, Lloyd, here I am. And I've, uh, I've just made the most amazing discovery. They're absolutely necessary in all walks of life. What's not absolutely necessary in all walks of life? Feet. 
Not many laughs ensued, but you can hardly blame the performance. In fact, all praise for trooperism to Enid Trevor, bashing straight on while the debris was still in mid-air. Since that was June the 30th, 1944, the bang must have been a V1. They just started coming over a little over a fortnight before. It missed anyway, but not by much. And for a horrible moment, a workaday comedy show had been thrust into the front line. The show that pursued our troops most enthusiastically round the theatres of war was merry-go-round. Middle East merry-go-round, as it started off, then Mediterranean merry-go-round, and finally splitting into three editions for Army, Navy, and Air Force. The Army version, subtitled Studio Stand Easy, became the domain of Charlie Chester and Company. The Navy one was the jumping-off point for Eric Barker. <laughs> Carry on smoking. I, uh, I uh, have a few announcements here for anybody who's interested. <laughs> Silence. Silence. Leave. Leave will be cancelled next weekend. As nobody's come back from last weekend yet, it won't make the slightest difference. In peacetime, that show would become Barker's feature, Waterlogged Spa, a location not unlike the one where the RAF's merry-go-round was set. Their location, in fact, would eventually become the peacetime title of the series. But in these wartime days, it was merely the refrain of this well-remembered song. Concealment is a thing that we've relied on. That much, finding in the marsh. We like to keep the place from being spied on. To camouflage the aeroplane instead of using net. The other day we painted it, but much to our regret. We did it so successfully we haven't found it yet. And much finding in the marsh. Wing Commander Kenneth Horne again, and Squadron Leader Richard Murdoch, whose musical aptitudes were sometimes put to more satirical use. Ladies and gentlemen, the stink pots. <laughs> I worry, cause you're stepping out. Do I worry, cause you've got me in doubt? Though your kisses aren't right, do I give a bag of beans? Do I stay home every night and read my magazine? Am I curious <laughs> when the gossip flies? Am I furious? About your little white lies. And when all our evenings end, because you've got a sick friend who needs you. Do I worry, honey? You, you can bet your, your life, life I do. Do I worry? Why tell the breeze it ain't so? Am I curious? <laughs> the ink spots coming in for a gentler ribbing than some Americans of the time were getting. But little niggles of that kind were of absolutely no account when set against the news of the progress of the war, which, while not relentlessly good, did go on improving and accelerating until... This is London calling. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced 
that Hitler is dead. I repeat that. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. News which can have dismayed only the most desperate of scriptwriters, who were thereby deprived of the best ever target for insult gags. Within days, the war was at an end, and Churchill, using a phrase which, in its puritanical restraint, was worthy of Sir John Reith, was saying, "We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing," which was marked by a victory edition of more or less everything. Above all, the by now sanctified Itmar. Tell me, why are you standing on one leg? Well, sir... Now, don't tell me. So it was you I saw posing as Eros in Piccadilly on Tuesday night. <laughs> oh, sir, I did enjoy myself. Really? Every time I waved my flag, I found myself on top of a taxi with a soldier. <laughs> well, you were lucky to get one. I came home by underground. I slipped down a manhole and caught the last drain. <laughs> the sailors were a bit saucy. Oh, there was one kept bumping into me and calling me his little collision mat. <laughs> he fell for me in a big way, sir. Well, did he jump off the lamppost and land on your quarterdeck? <laughs> what about the RAF? Oh, sir, what a flighty lot. Uh, Why, they wanted me to do the victory roll. <laughs> well, you shouldn't do your hair up in a bun. They thought you were a piece of cake. Anyway, Mrs. Mop, I want you to appear in my victory parade. Not as Godiva, sir. I'm sure that's where I caught my rheumatism. Well. You must have sat on a damp horse. And Tommy Handley, who more than anyone else had embodied the uncrushable high spirits of the nation, led the tribute to Churchill, who had embodied its indomitable fighting instinct. The song may sound slightly fatuous now, but it must have been great fun to sing it in May 1945. We walk behind the man who smoked the beef cigar. We follow the man whose master plan has carried us through the war. One sniff of the old Havana. We follow him right to Fujiyama. We're glad we walk behind the man who smoked the beef cigar. Of course, this wasn't the end of the entire struggle by any means, as the variety head John Watt was careful to remind listeners on another victory show, the Victory Party. Don't think, please, because we're throwing a party that we've forgotten that there are men still fighting in the Far East. They're all far from home, but they're not forgotten. But this is victory in Europe. It is the end of phase one, and we're all due for a little rejoicing before we get on with that other war. In order to cater for what did tend to become forgotten armies in the Japanese war so far away, special SEAC shows, Southeast Asia Command, were organised to maintain the morale of those involved at first or second hand in that conflict. At one of these in Leeds, the incredible Stainless Stephen resurfaced yet again to tell of his troop entertaining travels in Burma. His method hadn't changed a bit. Still the aldermanic delivery, still the clearing of the throat after the punchline, and still he got away with it. But you know, folks, I'm very, very proud of this jungle uniform of mine. This is all I wore out here with those very, very gallant lads in Burma. I did most of my shows standing on jeeps, on ammunition boxes. As a matter of fact, one particular show I did on the gallows at Camilla. There was a great deal of wishful thinking, but I'm still here yet. 
I want to tell you a bit about Burma, folks, as you've all got interest over there. It's a wonderful country. To say that the wise men come from the east, by God, what I saw of it, I don't blame them either. <laughs> the climate over there, Mr. Hammond, 110 degrees in the shade. Talk about being on Ilkley Moor, about that. I was walking up and down India, about that, about collar, about tie, about shirt and about pants. Uh, before I'd been there a month, I was about any skin on my back as well. An American colonel's got eagles on his shoulders, had two vultures on mine for a fortnight. I went from there to a spot called Gahima, up in the Chin Hills, 8,000 feet above sea level. We had to bend down at night to let the moon pass. <laughs> so the radio stars of 15, even 20 years before, still seemed to be around. And it was left to one of the most durable of them to celebrate the very end of war on VJ Day, while incidentally paying tribute to some of the personalities who had made wartime civilian life worth living. And here he is... Ladies and gentlemen, Norman Long. with the most appropriate song I can think of for today. It's a song called The Victory Ball. Now we've set the world to rights again and victory in our laps. We've turned up all the lights again and polished off the jets. We'll have a jubilation, a beano and a spree with all the allied nations celebrating victory. High and low, great and small, we'll all be dancing at the victory ball. All be making whoopee, trying to relax, never caring tuppence for your income tax. Teddy Brown is coming with an actual admirer. You do an acrobatic stunt, dancing on the wire. And Vera Lynn will want to set the world on fire on the night of the victory ball. High and low, great and small, we'd all be dancing at the victory ball, shouting out a chorus, jigging up and down, Richard Tauber singing Knees Up Mother Brown. <laughs> BBC announcers, though it's rather strange, we'll all be coming so they're trying to arrange for dear old Stuart Hibbard to say blimey for a change <laughs> on the night of the victory ball. I alone, great and small, we'll all be dancing at the victory ball. Singing Rue Britannia, shouting you parade, won't go home to morning till the break of day. Dear old Winston Churchill, looking frightfully fit, with the biggest and the fattest cigar he's ever lit, and treating Lady Astor to a double gin in it. <laughs> Old teeth and trousers, Norman Long. And there were already new comedy stars among the returning forces. Victory's star show featured a young man with a hyphen called Terry Thomas, whose war memoirs were an extension of the silly-ass comedy of the 30s, with a little more satirical sting. Well, anti-heroic, anyway. To bring this... Um, <coughs> to bring this story almost up to date, in 1940, I received a most cunningly worded invitation to join the army. Uh, at, the, at the bottom of this illuminating address for the letters RSVP. Regimentum Soldare Vaccinati Pandemonium. Which being translated from the old Greek means if you don't turn up, it'll be just too bad. 
if wartime overall had tended to encourage quantity in comedy, necessarily at the expense of concentrated quality, it had also set up an interesting tension between the American way of presenting radio and our own. And one new and popular show more or less dramatised this very difference. What are women wearing in shoes this year? Feet! Correct. Pay that man five shillings. What is an unlucky man? A man who gets the itch and a broken arm at the same time. Correct. Pay that man ten shillings. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you have two sublimely happy men because... Ignorance is bliss. And as living proof that it's folly to be wise, we present three inmates from a fool's paradise, Mr. Michael Moore, Miss Gladys Hay, and Mr. Harold Barrons. In effect, what happened in Ignorance's Bliss was that the three British knockabout comedians were constantly escaping and subverting the control of the would-be smooth North American question master figure, played by Stuart McPherson, who was actually a Canadian. The results were often more raucous than polished, but then the title made no secret of that. Thank you. Thank you. Now, here is the next question, so give me your undivided attention. This one comes from Veronica's story of Five Broxash Road, West Side, London. And she asks this. A car is traveling at 50 miles per hour. How many miles per hour does another car go if it is traveling at the same speed? Yeah, is that all one question? Of course it is. What did you think it was? I thought you was reading the 10 o'clock news. Look, it's a perfectly simple question. Mr. Moore, would you like me to repeat it? No, thank you, Mr. McPherson. That won't be necessary. Then you know the answer. No, I've decided to sit this one out. Uh, I see. Why don't you ask me if I know the answer? Well, do you? No. Miss Hay, why don't you use the water on your brain to go bathing in? Look, we'll take the question a bit at a time. A car is traveling at 50 miles per hour. What make is it? How many horsepower? How many people Look, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. A car is traveling at 50 miles per hour. Where's he going? He's not going anywhere in particular. Then what's all the blinking at for? It's people like that what causes all these accidents. 50 miles an hour, he don't know where he's going. What a geezer! What a geezer, a catchphrase, of course. Incidentally, when Stuart McPherson was ill one week, his deputy, chosen for a near North American manner at the microphone, was a very young man called Eamon Andrews. This single performance was heard by Angus Mackay, the senior sports producer, and he took Andrews on to fame and fortune. Not that those could buy you much in austerity Britain, where the sight of a banana or a pineapple was rare enough to draw a crowd of curious onlookers, and the appropriate thing to do with a sausage was to toast it. If the meat shortage had one historical justification, it was that it provided the finest hour of the comedienne Suzette Tarry. Her method had changed just a little bit, because she dropped some of the old-fashioned charlady wobble in the voice and become instead the suffering austerity housewife, wrestling with the shortages. This recording carries no scriptwriter credit, but it is the most brilliant parade of innocently suggestive phraseology, the sort of thing you could imagine, say, Alan Bennett drawing inspiration from in his boyhood. Got a bit of news for you. I've changed my butcher now. Oh, I was losing so much weight. <laughs> My goodness, yes. I've gone to Mr. Chitterling down the road there. Because I've known old Charlie Chitterling for years, you know. We had a boy and girl love affair together. Because he's married now with grown-up responsibilities. <laughs> but uh, when I went into his shop and he was registering me sort of off of, you know, like, I said to him, now, look here, Charlie, 
I hope you're going to treat me nice for old time's sake. He said, I will, Susie, but not in front of a shop full of customers. <laughs> Kept his word, too. Hey? <laughs> oh, yes. That evening, while I was sitting in my own like, I heard a flop in me all, see? And he pushed a pound of sausages through me letterbox. <laughs> They were tied in a true lover's knot. <laughs> with, with, a, with a little card on them for old Lang Syne. <laughs> so of course, I went into him next morning to thank him. He said, don't thank me, thank the lady who left them on the counter three weeks ago. <laughs> But, you know, I had to leave me old butcher. I couldn't stand it. And, you know, at one time I thought there was going to be romance between us. Well, any girl would. I'll tell you what happened. It was during the war, it happened. I went into his shop, you see, and slipped on a piece of gristle. <laughs> well, when I came to, I was laying across his chopping board. <laughs> me with a piece of liver. <laughs> he was looking down into my eyes and calling me his workers' playtime. <laughs> and you know, when I got home, I found he'd tucked a couple of kidneys underneath me forepen of a scragging. Absurd, you may say, but actually so very close to real life at that time. I remember the cues, not to mention the meat. No, the boys who were destined to take radio over the far edge of real absurdity were just struggling out of their uniforms. Land ahead! I should have said that sooner, shouldn't I? <laughs> You are listening to the Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. And that was part four of A History of Radio Comedy. Now very much part of the history of radio comedy is this next show. Here is an episode of Much Binding in the Marsh. Much Binding in the Marsh. Richard Murdoch, Kenneth Horn, Sam Costa, Maurice Denham, Maureen Riscoe, Helen Hill, and the Dance Orchestra, conducted by Stanley Black. At last, the moment for which I've waited so long has arrived, and I have the chance of saying a few words. Step on it, Slasher. A few words about the new edition of. The new edition of Much Binding. I myself, of course, will have a leading part and... Oh, very well. Much Binding takes the air. (laughs) 
was in Sidibarane, we used to have a secret sign which was beaten on the native drums whenever an unwelcome visitor was approaching. And played in Sidibaranean language, it really meant Skorop Charatyono. Now, therefore, is the time for me to say Skorop Charatyono, for here comes your old friend, Richard Maddow. <laughs> How do you do, visitors? Welcome once again to Much Finding in the Marsh. And, uh, well, it is nice to be back again, really, it is. I, it is really. <laughs> How are you? All right. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's fine. Uh, you know, we've had jolly nice holidays. Mr. Horn went to Bermuda. Dudley Davenport went to the south of France. Costa went to the Italian lakes. And I had the most enjoyable three days at Rotherhigh. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, we're all back at the old place looking bronzed and slightly handsome, and... Well, it is nice to be back, it really is. How are you? All right. Oh. Uh, there's another thing we're awfully pleased to find when we got back, that this very welcome change in men's fashions, you know, the new look for men. Mind you, the pioneers have had to be a bit bold to appear in public with their jackets half an inch longer. But it has made a difference, you know. I was walking along Piccadilly yesterday and I saw a man wearing last year's trousers. No, he did look silly. <laughs> Everyone was turning round and laughing at him. Very nice to be back, really, it is. I think, yes, it is, yes. We've been busy discussing plans for the club's future. Mr. Horn suggested organising a drive for members, but I pointed out that as we had no members, it seemed hardly worth ordering the taxi. <laughs> While we were away, we let the club to some Olympic athletes, and I must say, they've treated the place very well. The only unfortunate incident was when a Tatislavian discus thrower threw his discus into Mr. Blake's pond, and, <laughs> in order to keep in practice, helped himself from our gramophone library. He broke the European record and Ravel's bolero, which was the <laughs> Poor old Ravel, he didn't like it a bit. Uh, they also, unfortunately, broke the top of the piano, so I asked Dudley to send for a cabinet maker. He said the best place to get one would be in France, because they've had so much experience lately. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is nice to be back there. <laughs> one thing I know you'll be awfully pleased about, that is that Stanley Black and the Dance Orchestra are here again, and they're now going to play Me and My Shadow, and... Oh, it is nice. I can't get...
Sir Come in. Ah, oh, good morning, sir. It is good to see you. Oh, sir, aren't you looking sunburned? Oh, I'm a ruckus. Very nice of you. Uh, does it suit me? Uh, no, sir, but it makes a change. <laughs> Tell me, sir, how was Bermondsey? Bermuda, madam. Uh, I'm so sorry, sir. Yes. I, I forgot you'd been to foreign parts. Oh, Bermuda isn't exactly foreign, Murdoch. It's a British possession. Oh, we've still got one left, have we? Oh, <laughs> but, sir, honestly, you are looking sunburned. All except the top of your head. Well, Murdoch, it was pretty hot on the beach of Bermuda, so I kept my bowler on most of the time. <laughs> Very wise of you, sir. Yeah, what's more, it came in pretty useful on the boat coming back. <laughs> Why, uh, did you have to bail? Oh, don't be silly, Murdoch. The captain does that. <laughs> what I mean is, it was a great protection in the swimming bath when I dived in at the shallow end. I'm sure it was, sir. Uh, oh, so you are looking sunburned. Uh, you like that all over? <laughs> There's one little place that you really must see when you go to Bermuda, Murdoch. It's called the Flango Club. It reminded me of a similar place in the city of Rania. Uh, what have I ever told you about it, did I? Oh, you're sure to have done several times. Oh, very. Uh, what else did you do in America, sir? Oh, it has a very, very amusing sort of... Still, Murdoch, I mustn't talk about myself all the time. I'm, I'm bursting to hear about your holes. Oh, very well, sir. Uh, I packed my sandwiches and got down to the bus stop. Uh, in good time, but uh, when the bus came, it was full up, so I had you to... You know, the Murdoch, America's a wonderful place. They, they even give you iced water in your bed. Give you what, sir? Iced water in your bed in America. And rubber sheets, too, I suppose. No. <laughs> Murdoch are being very foolish, but right. really, America... Oh, there I go again, talking about myself, and I was so interested in what you were telling me about your holiday. Do carry on. Well, sir, fortunately, a relief bus came along half empty. <laughs> And, oh, it was a relief. <laughs> then the conductress showed me to my ticket and punched my seat, and <laughs> off we went past the gasworks and over the canal. Oh, another wonderful we... thing, Murdoch, about Bermuda, the, the surf bathing. It's, it's wonderful. I remember one day I was surf bathing with a very attractive girl, and a wave knocked us sprawling on the beach together. But Bessie was passing at the time, and when I got back to the hotel, she went right off and... Still, Murdoch, tell me more about your trip. I... <laughs> I'm talking too much. Now, where'd you got to? Uh, just over the canal, sir. <laughs> well, eventually we got to Rotherhithe and we had the most enjoyable queue-up for ice cream. I found my digs and I must say the landlady was a jolly good sort. Very anxious about our welfare. She wouldn't allow any of us to stay out after 11. And the bathroom... Well, incidentally, Murdoch, the Niagara Falls. <laughs> Niagara Falls. Now, there's a site for you. Where? Uh, Niagara Falls. Oh, I see. Uh, does he? Yes, yes. And the way it tumbles over the cliff into the river, the spray is unbelievable. And what cause is that, sir? I imagine the water has something to do with it. <laughs> you know, Manuk, the girl who showed me round was just placing me in a position to see things to advantage when uh, Bessie came round the corner and... Murdoch, you're wearing glasses. You never used to. Is there, is there anything wrong with your eyes? No, sir, but everyone's wearing glasses now. But aren't, aren't they very expensive? No, sir, only four and eleven pence a week. <laughs> Now, look, Murdoch, I, I really can't wait to hear the rest of your adventures in Rotherhithe. I'm afraid you'll have to, sir, because I must bring up Costa Anent our elevenses. Anent, Murdoch? What's Anent? Well, sir, you know what a tent is? Yes. Well, Anent is the same thing, but there's no tea. Oh, very well, then we have coffee. Right, sir. Costa! <laughs> you know, sir, I can't keep my eyes off your tie. <laughs> Murdoch, I bet there's no one else in this country with a tie as bright as mine. <laughs> of course not, sir. 
Come on, he said, what's this, something? Costa, where did you get that tie? Well, Sir Emily made it for me out of a pair of her It's a very tie. nice tie. <laughs> and that explains why it's got whalebone down the edge. Tell me, Costa. Costa, where did you spend your holidays? Well, sir, as I told Mr. Murdo, I went to the lakes. Yes, of course, Costa. The Italian lakes. Well, sir, Mrs. Lake was Italian, but Mr. Lake keeps the paper shop... Uh, Mr. Lake keeps the paper shop next to us at Croinge. But, Costa, I understood you'd been to see the beauties of Italy. Oh, no, sir, I missed that. That was at the Croinge Empire last week. <laughs> this week, they've got sporty girls of Vladivostok. Costa, where were you last week? I just told you, sir. I was at the lakes. You see, before she married, Mrs. Lake was a Miss Tutti Frutti. She was, she was in the restaurant business, and once a week she used to make the sweet course. I know, Pancake Tuesday. No, Ice Cream Sunday. <laughs> Costa, surely Mrs. Lake was... <laughs> oh, that's very, very clever stuff, Murdoch. <laughs> sir, you don't mean that thing of Costa's about the ice cream something? No, Murdoch. That thing of yours about the conductor shagging your ticket and pinching your seat. <laughs> Incidentally, Costa, what on earth made you spend your holiday at the house next door to yours? Well, Emily and me thought the change of air would do us good. <laughs> and did it? Oh, yes, sir. We're two different people now. Oh, really? Who are you? That's right, sir. And what's more, Emily's twinges have completely disappeared. Oh, it's a pity we still have nothing to talk about now. So I suppose you're going to the lakes again next year? Oh, no, sir. We've got quite different plans. Oh. Yes, the lakes are coming to stay with us. By the way, Murdoch, what did uh, Dudley Davenport do on his holidays? I don't know, sir. We'd better find out. Dudley! You know, sir, the trouble with dahlias is that they harbour earwigs. Yes, I know. My mother has the same trouble. Right. <laughs> don't tell me she harbours earwigs. Oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you said Dudley Salt. Uh, good morning, sir. Dudley Davenport at your service, sir. <laughs> ah, there you are, Dudley. Mr. Horn has been asking about your holidays. Where did you go in the end? Uh, well, sir, first of all, I took my mater to the lochs. Uh, do they keep the paper shop next door? No, 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 Mr. Costa. The Scottish lochs. We went there for the fishing and the deer stalking. Now, now, if there's one thing I like, it's a nice bit of deer stalking. I was down at Clacton last Costa. year. Costa! <laughs> it's all right. So why she had an umbrella at the time? Costa! All right. Dudley, tell us some more. Well, sir, I, I left my meter in Scotland and went to France, sir. Did you go to Paris? Oh, rather, sir. Oh, Dudley, Dudley, I've often wondered, you know the Champs-Élysées? Well, about the third turning down on the right, a few doors along, there used to be a little place where you... Oh. <laughs> oh, it's it's still there, is it? I'm so glad. I say, Dudley, did you bring back any souvenirs? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. I, I thought you'd rather like to see this. That oh, that's absolutely, isn't it? <laughs> rather, very daring. What? I, not a word to Bessie about this, Murdoch. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, Costa, put it down. Well, so I was only trying to put see it what... down, Costa. You, you can get a pair of your own when you go over there. Now then, Dudley, what are you preparing for lunch today? I suppose it's going to be some little French dish. Well, sir, it's more or less a sort of hot pot, sir, but uh, I put some flavouring in. I got some Paris, sir. Oh, it sounds fine. And is it in the oven now? Oh, yes, sir. It should be hotting up nicely, sir. But what was the flavouring you got in Paris? I, I don't know, sir, but it was very expensive. It just said essence on the tin. Dudley, that's essence. Essence in France is petrol. Oh. I say I am a fool. <laughs>
By the way, sir, there's a lady outside who says she's come to sing when all the world was gay. Well, it's about time we had something sensible. What's her name? It's Helen Hill, sir. What's her name? Helen Hill? Yes, sir. Oh, that'll probably be Helen Hill, sir. Uh, send her in, Custer. Very good, sir. Miss Helen Hill. Murdoch. the map of Bermuda that Hamilton runs from Pembroke to Somerset, you see. Uh, does he, sir? He must get awfully hot. No, 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 Murdoch. What I mean is, as you go down the coast... Come in. Very nice Good evening. 
Oh, good evening. Uh, good evening. And you've got the most beautiful view over the harbour. Excuse me a minute. Uh, I say, do sit down, will you? Oh, thanks very much. No, not you, sir. I mean, uh, Miss, uh, do sit down, will you? Thank you. Uh, we shan't keep you long. Are you saying, sir? Well, the deep sea fishing out there is a... Is a... Who is this, madam? Uh, I expect it's the lady who's come to... How are you enjoying much binding? Everything all right? Oh, yes, rather. Oh, good. You're not being overworked. Oh, no, not at all. Oh, standard. Uh, sir, this must be... Uh, uh, who, madam? Uh, you know, sir, that... Uh, pass me the Radio Times. Thanks. Uh, Maureen Riscoe, sir. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Well, Miss Riscoe, it's nice to see you. <laughs> Thanks. You must pop in again sometime. Thanks, I'd like to. Good. Well, bye-bye for now. Goodbye. Uh, cheerio, Mrs. Riscoe, and don't overdo it, you know. Go and have a nice lie down. Thanks, I will. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, uh, yes, I, I think she'll be all right, don't you, sir? I mean, yeah. unobtrusive, and yet at the same time, nice diction, a good sense of timing, and... Between ourselves, rather a neat pair of ankle holes. <laughs> Quite agree, Murdoch, but not a word to Bessie about that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> uh, by the way, sir, are you staying for the sing-song this evening? Don't tell me you're having a sing-song. All right, I won't, sir, if you feel like that about it. <laughs> Only try no, no, to no, accuse no, no, I, I, I'm sorry if I upset you by saying that. Well, sir, it's a little hurtful. I mean, it, oh. it, it's not like you. Sorry. Uh, you usen't to be like that, sir, I mean. <laughs> uh, usen't you not to be? Probably I usen't. I'm sorry, that's all. What are the arrangements for the sing-song? Uh, Costa and Dudley are fixing everything up, sir. I'll get them in. Uh, Costa, bring Dudley in, will you? Oh, it's you, Dudley. Well, bring Costa in, will you? Oh, I see. Well, bring them in as well, will you? Apparently, Mr. Blake the Sexton and his daughter Bluebell are coming in, too. Oh, she's, good. She's going to help with the sing-song. Ah, oh, good evening, Mr. Blake. Have you been busy on the farm? Oh, nearly. All nearly the women's land army. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear it. Uh, no, are you junior little girl? Are you my, my daughter, Bluebell? Oh, how do you do? Sir, I'd like to introduce you. This is the sexton's daughter, Miss Bluebell Blake. Uh, how do you do? How do you do, I'm sure. Yes, I expect you are. <laughs> now, sir, I suggest we leave Costa and Dudley and Bluebell to discuss things, and we'll take Mr. Blake and get his advice on some of our agricultural problems. Right. Uh, come along, Mr. Blake. Uh, tell me, our rhubarb's a bit forward. How do we bend it back? All are in by the way, Bluebell, Dudley's been telling me about his holiday. Oh, he, he's done a tremendous lot of travelling, you know. Proper globe tripper. Oh, I say, steady on, Mr. Costa. Yes, he's not content with just one place. A different spot every year. Oh, I say, Mr. Costa, I'm not as spotty as all that. Mind you, mind you, I've got about a bit in my time. Folkestone, Ashton Underline. I, I suppose it's the wanderlustrous in me. <laughs> um, have you done much travelling, Miss Blake? No, I can't say I've done much myself. But I've got an uncle who's a traveller... He travels in Baby's Ramford. <laughs> you don't have look silly. <laughs> Where did you go for your holiday, Mr. Davenport? Um, can. I beg your pardon? He means cans. <laughs> it's between nice and Jew and less pins. <laughs> uh, by the way, Dudley, can you get nice beer in cans? Well, I always think it... <laughs> I always think it tastes nice out of a bottle, Mr. Costa. Uh, what are you going to sing of the sing-song, Miss Blake? I would like to sing a song that has been a great success at the Farmers' Union Socials, entitled Roses and Radishes. Roses and radishes, pansies and peas. Here's elf to the dicky birds that sing in the trees. Three cheers for our sailors who plough up the seas. Singing roses and radishes, roses and radishes, roses and radishes. What do you keep on repeating it for? 
help it. It's these darn radishes. <laughs> Roses and radishes. Great. <laughs> Oh, that, that was very nice, Bluebell. You ought to go into a repository company. Uh, perhaps you'd like to hear my little contribution. You wouldn't? Oh, well, here it is. It's called, I'm looking over a four-leaf clover, but tomorrow I'll be looking for work. Did your granny come from Greenwich? Did you bring her up on spinach? How are things in Glockamora? Dig me, Jack. On a sunny day in Galway You could see right down the hallway If it wasn't for the plumbing at the back Oh, the pride of County Down is now A corporal in the brownies Where the praties meet the snook Hear the Kerry Pipers playing Five to four, the field I'm laying What a turn up for the boo Was your mother Maggie Murphy There's an awful lot of curvy In Brazil and that's my Irish home sweet home Oh, you might as well go chase me Up a gum tree California, here I come. Well, I, I hope this isn't going to clash with you, Mr. Costa, because it's a little piece written by my mother, Lady Davenport, and it's rather highfalutin language, I'm afraid, but here it is. Uh, good evening to you, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight I'm going to, to render a spirited piece of vocal mimicry, none other than a riotous impression of the bagpipes of the Davenport girl pipers, <laughs> as they rousingly march and countermarch across the arena. The whole amazing impression concluding with what I sure will prove to be a highly comical anticlimax. <laughs> the, the Davenport girl pipers. <laughs> Now then, sir, let's hear what these chaps are going to do at the sing-song. Well, we've just done it, sir. Oh, in that case, uh, we'd better try something out. Yes, sir, I have an idea. You haven't, Murdoch. I have, sir, I think. Uh, yes, I have. Uh, look, will you help me out with the Trish Trash Polka? It hasn't, unfortunately, got any English words, but I've adapted it to an old Mongolese poem. Uh, I'll sing the Mongolese words, and you join in there when it says, Old Mongolese Ptamplan Noises. Uh, old what, Murdoch? Uh, Tamplan noises, sir. It's, it's quite simple. Oh, good. Well, I'll have a stab at it. Of course. Uh, clear my throat for me, will you, Murdoch? Right, sir. <coughs> oh, that's much more comfortable. Uh, off we go. Cochin, cochin, batiara esme float. Cochin, cochin. Cochin, cochin, 
You have been listening to the Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. That's all for this week, folks. So until I speak to you again next week, this is Graham Stevens saying, keep smiling. We've got some off-price crack ties, some miles and miles of carpet tiles, TVs, deep freeze, and David Bowie OPs, all games, gold chains, worst names, and Edda Push, and Trevor Francis track suits from a mush and shepherd's bush. Bush, 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 bush. No income tax, no VAT, no money back, no guarantee. Black or white, rich or poor, we'll cut prices at a straw. Street. Viva Hookie Street.
This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.